Many American founders, as we have seen, were dramatically impacted by the Tanakh, and many of their successors were likewise. But there is no guarantee that America and American leadership will always remain inspired by the Bible. And here Cyrus offers a cautionary example. Welcome to Bible 365, episode 277, The Second Temple and Us. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. We return again to one of the most fascinating artifacts in all the world, not only, though especially, from a biblical perspective. The Cyrus Cylinder, found buried in the Temple of Marduk in Iraq, now on display in the British Museum. Written on the cylinder is a proclamation issued in the 530s BCE, where Cyrus describes how he conquered Babel and reversed its tyrannical decrees, allowing exiled peoples to return. As we have seen, both in our study of Isaiah and Daniel, it is Cyrus who allows the Israelites to return from exile to build the temple. For this, Cyrus is remembered in Jewish history. It is easy to forget, however, that the temple was not actually built during Cyrus's reign. And, therefore, if we wish to archaeologically attach ourselves to the king in whose reign the temple did come into being, we must find artifacts from Cyrus's successor, and we must also seek to understand why the Jews waited until that reign to achieve what ought to have been their most urgent aspiration. We saw yesterday how the Jews who laid the foundation for the Second Temple were of mixed emotions with some celebrating the extraordinary opportunity and others weeping at the memory of the glorious first temple that had been lost forever. We further discussed how these two distinct attitudes, mourning on the one hand and a desire for restoration and return on the other, are often merged in the Jewish attachment to Jerusalem and the Temple Mount, and how therefore these emotions meld together to serve as a source of strength. Yet there is also a danger here. Life is unpredictable, and Jewish history even more so. At times, new challenges present themselves. And if Jews allow our vision of the past to dominate our sense of what the future should be, then when the future does not meet our expectations, then we can become profoundly daunted. The Bible always guides us, but the past is not always the future. Or as Yogi Berra famously put it, the future ain't what it used to be. Asked what he meant, Yogi Berra explained that, quote, I just meant that times are different, not necessarily better or worse, just different, end quote. Meaning at times life presents new challenges and new opportunities, and one must recognize both. In many ways, the period after Cyrus's proclamation was greater than the last days of the first temple. The Jews had the backing of a superpower. They were not in danger of destruction. But clearly some of the Jews cannot get over their nostalgia for the first temple. And this makes itself manifest when an obstacle presents itself. There were those of non-Jewish descent who were living in the land, brought in by Assyria during its own conquest. These individuals had taken on a syncretism of Jewish tradition and foreign pagan observances. And they ask the Jews to take part in the rebuilding of the temple and are refused. The temple of the one God is universal. It is a house of prayer for all nations. It is meant to serve as a source of inspiration for Jew and non-Jew alike but its actual construction must take place as an act of biblical worship by Jews. In response to this refusal, those that were turned down seek to stop the Jewish settling of Jerusalem. And thus is born, as described in the book of Ezra, the first, if you will, anti-Israel movement, 
This is the first case of activism against the Jewish right to Jerusalem in Cyrus's empire 2,000 years ago. These religious syncretists hire lobbyists in Persia to spread lies about the Jews in the court of Cyrus. We are informed in the book of Ezra, chapter 4, verse 4. In Hebrew, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia. Thus is the building of the temple suddenly stalled. Picture this, if you will. For many years, the altar in Jerusalem is built. Sacrifices are being offered, but the temple itself is uncompleted. The Cyrus that was a hero to Jews suddenly gives in to the anti-Jewish lobby. And yet, rather than lobby Cyrus in return, the Jews seem initially to give in, to accept the status quo, to allow the temple to remain in ruins. And perhaps the longing for the first temple allows us to understand this lack of alacrity. After all, they seem to think, this temple cannot match the magnificence of the previous one. Why risk everything on behalf of an experience that will not live up to expectations? But we must, ladies and gentlemen, note the other implication of this state of affairs. Cyrus is one of the most remarkable political figures in the Bible. Indeed, as we shall see later, it is he who has given the last words in the Hebrew Bible. He is a Gentile king who, we are informed by Scripture, saw himself as called by God to help bring about the Israelite return to the Holy Land. But Cyrus also gives in to this attempt to stop the building of the temple. He gives in to this attempt to deny the Jewish right to Jerusalem. Menachem Begin, in his book The Revolt, describes why there were those who, as we have previously discussed, did not even wish to allow the Jews to sound the shofar at the Western Wall under the British mandate. It was, Begin argued, because the stones of the Temple Mount itself proclaimed the Jewish connection to Jerusalem and the land. Or, as Begin wrote, describing his opponent's perspective, quote, Sacred tradition, living testimony to a glorious past, a charter of rights hewn in ancient stone, precisely for these reasons must the stones of the wall be taken from the Jews. End quote. This is exactly the motivation of these lobbyists in Cyrus's court, the lobbyists that seek to stop the building of the temple. And these lobbying attempts succeeded for a while in the court of Cyrus, and the construction of the temple is utterly stalled. Into this breach, as we have already seen, step two of the last prophets to ever live, Haggai and Zechariah. Haggai plaintively assaults the cognitive dissonance of his fellow Jews, who are going on with their lives, paying no attention to the fact that the Temple Mount still lies in ruins. Ultimately, through their efforts, the building of the Temple begins again. But only many years after Cyrus, in the reign of a king named Darius, who comes to the throne, in 521 BCE. And thus, ladies and gentlemen, if we seek to connect to the king who helped bring the temple into being, we need to visit not only the Cyrus Cylinder in the British Museum, but also another fascinating remnant, the bricks of the Palace of Darius from a capital city that we have already seen mentioned in the Bible, Shushan. It is in the Louvre that bricks from Darius's palace can be seen a palace to which a critical letter would presumably have arrived. The book of Ezra describes how when the Jews began construction again, the Persian governors in the Holy Land inquired as to the legitimacy of this effort, and they wrote to Darius, describing what the Jews in Jerusalem had told them. Chapter 5, verse 7. 
they sent a letter unto him, wherein was written thus, Unto Darius the king all peace. Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is built with great stones, and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goeth fast on, and prospereth in their hands. Then we asked those elders and said unto them thus, Who commanded you to build this house and to make up these walls? The governors further reported to Darius that the Jews had claimed that they were operating under the original decree of Cyrus, which allowed the building of the temple. It is this that the Persian governors seek to verify. Verse 17. Now, therefore, if it seem good to the king, let there be search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, whether it be so, that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build this house of God at Jerusalem and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. Darius, in turn, responds favorably to the letter. Chapter 6. Then Darius the king made a decree and search was made in the house of the rolls where the treasures were laid up in Babylon. And there was found at Achmeta in the palace that is in the province of the Medes, a roll. And therein was a record thus written, In the first year of Cyrus the king, the same Cyrus the king made a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be built, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations thereof be strongly laid. The height thereof sixty cubits, and the breadth thereof sixty cubits, with three rows of great stones and a row of new timber. And let the expenses be given out of the king's house. And also let the golden and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took forth out of the temple which is at Jerusalem and brought into Babylon, be restored, and brought again into the temple which is at Jerusalem, everyone to his place, and place them in the house of God. Thus Darius, after research in the royal archives, was able to confirm that Cyrus had indeed originally decreed the building of the temple to go forward. And therefore, Darius himself allowed it to resume. Thus, to see remnants of Darius' palace in the Louvre is to connect to this moment. Or, as professors Fant and Reddish put it in their book that we have cited before, The Lost Treasures of the Bible, quote, The magnificent artifacts from the palaces of Darius allow us to view the power and wealth of this foreign ruler, who is credited not only with giving permission to the Jews to rebuild their temple, but also with providing funds both for its rebuilding and for the sacrifices of the people, end quote. The story of Cyrus and Darius provides perspective for us today. Speaking in Israel's Knesset, marking the 60th anniversary of Israeli independence, President George W. Bush described how American support for Israel was linked to America's historic reverence for the Hebrew Bible. Bush said, quote, The alliance between our governments is unbreakable, yet the source of our friendship runs deeper than any treaty. It is grounded in the shared spirit of our people, the bonds of the book, the ties of the soul, When William Bradford stepped off the Mayflower in 1620, he quoted the words of Jeremiah, Come, let us declare in Zion the word of God. The founders of my country saw a new promised land and bestowed upon their towns names like Bethlehem and New Canaan. And in time, many Americans became passionate advocates for a Jewish state. This is absolutely true and beautifully said. Many American founders, as we have seen, were dramatically impacted by the Tanakh, and many of their successors were likewise. But there is no guarantee that America and American leadership will always remain inspired by the Bible. And here Cyrus offers a cautionary example. Cyrus is both originally inspired by the God of Israel and by the Hebraic heritage of the Jewish people. And then he gives in to the first lobbying movement in history that sought to sever the Jews from Jerusalem. To study the story of Cyrus is to ponder the past but also to consider whether the biblical description of the God of the Hebrews will continue 
to serve for America as a source of guidance, not only in its relationship with the Jewish state, but also in the way that the Bible inspires America's own culture and the way it sees itself. At the same time, given the Bible's enduring power, we also have reason to hope that we will see in America many more moments of biblical inspiration yet to come. This is Mayor Salavacher. Looking forward to learning together tomorrow. Signing off.